You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. Uh, it's me, your host, Richard McCall, in Mompos, five hours south from Cartagena on Colombia's Caribbean coast. And this is episode 385 of the Colombia Calling podcast. This week's very special guest is Sharika Crawford, an assistant professor in history at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And she'll be talking about all things related to San Andres and Providencia and the lesser-known histories about those Colombian islands up there in the Caribbean, right beside Nicaragua. So very interesting conversation, and a great big thank you to her for being so unselfish with her time to explain and describe some of the situations in this very, very fascinating and much overlooked, overlooked in that it's a holiday destination and little else in the minds of Colombians. I know that you enjoyed last week's show, 384, with uh, Emily Hart, our newscast journalist. Truly interesting. In fact, she got uh, quite a lot of very favorable feedback from all over the country and actually various different uh, different countries around the, uh, the world. So uh, thank you to Emily. Emily for giving up her time being in Mompos with us. Uh, that was uh, pretty special for here for the week. And, you know, getting to know us a little bit more on the Columbia Calling podcast. Uh, that's always a good thing, isn't it? Next week, we've got a, more interesting folks to talk about things related to Columbia. Thank you again to those of you who signed up this week to the Patreon campaign. That's patreon.com slash Columbia Calling. And for as little as $2 a month, you can ensure our economic sustainability and viability as a podcast. I'm going to leave you now with episode segment two and Emily will be back, Emily Haas, and she'll give you the news this week from Colombia. And then in segment three, we will return on the line to Annapolis, Maryland, to talk to Sharika Crawford about San Andres and Providencia. Thank you again for listening. Don't go away. And we're back. This is segment three of episode 385 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. I'm Richard McCall, your host. My very special guest this week is no less than Sharika Crawford, who is the Associate Professor of History at the U.S. Naval Academy. That's in Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome on the Columbia Calling Podcast, Sharika. Thank you for having me, Richard. Uh, it's a real pleasure, you know. I mean, there's been some following going on on Twitter and so on. So I know, you know, I know your work and I've, and I've looked up some of your academic articles and stuff, but I've never been able to, let's say, host a podcast episode that deals with, um, I would say, sort of African or Afro-Latin Americans in the Caribbean. We've talked about Providencia with Tom Filing many years ago in his book on that, but you are the first expert on this field. So I'm, I'm feeling a bit out of, out of my depth here. No, I'm, I'm super um, excited and, and honored <laughs> to have the opportunity to chat about experiences and, and research with regards to Colombia, but 
in particular, the islands of San Andres and Providencia. Well, thank you again for your time. Uh, and let, let's just plunge straight in and, and, and talk about San Andres and, and Providencia. So, I mean, if I'm going to go back in time, you know, first we have an original indigenous population there, and then an English colonization of the islands, a sort of piracy. I mean, I want you to clarify everything right from the very beginning. Okay, so this is a question that comes up actually a lot. Um, even Colombians um, from the mainland, continentales, always are asking this question. So um, San Andres and Providencia and all of the keys and little islets that make up the archipelago, um, you could think of them as being part of a larger um, mosquitia um, sort of territory. Mm -hmm. um, they were never inhabited in terms of settlement by the Miskitu of Central America. Today, we kind of think of the Miskitu um, sprawling between Nicaragua and, and, and Honduras. They didn't use that as a place to have like communities. What they used it for is outposts for fishing, um, fishing up turtle, fishing up other type of marine life. Um, they would have these kind of regular seasonal fishing trips. Um, and the first really known kind of settlement is actually by the Puritans. Huh. Um, and when we think of Puritan history, we, we think of um, United States and we think about New England, um, but actually there had been um, an attempted settlement um, in the Caribbean and Providence Island was the location. It was very brief in the 17th century. So we're talking about maybe a 12 year time period in the early 1600s. Um, they were experimenting with enslaved African labor. Um, you know, they were sort of, you know, defenseless a little bit being yeah. out there, yeah. a lot of protection, but they did make um, inroads in communicating with um, the mosquito on the coast. And so there was a little bit of back and forth trade. But as you can imagine, the Spanish uh, were not too eager <laughs> to have the, the English settlement there and they drove them out in the 1640s. Mm -hmm. And then for about maybe five or so decades, both islands, again, are not fully inhabited. So the Spanish try to put like a garrison there, a military base. But this is isolated, right? I mean, even for men, there's no real community being there. So it doesn't really you know, settle there very well. And then what we will often have happening are these kind of stories of these buccaneers and pirates looking for a safe haven, right, as they plan mm -hmm. their next looting of a Spanish vessel. And so there is, you know, a very rich um, island folklore about people like Henry Morgan, um, who did pass through there, but but others who may be a little less familiar. And then really the first um, real, like, settlement of people again come in the 18th century, mid to late 18th century. And these are individuals who are coming from, like, Jamaica, coming from the English-speaking Caribbean, um, individuals who can't afford land probably any longer. Um, the price of land has skyrocketed. These are very rich plantation societies, and they essentially request land grants um, from the Spanish crown through New Granada, and they start to settle there. And they too also will bring um, African um, slaves. And that is the um, original population that makes up the Raizales or the um, native island population that we now see in San Andres and Providencia. Wow, it's it's, it's so much in that, and well, yeah, <laughs> try to pack it in. Place, but I'm thinking, so I'm thinking of as you say, this sort of anglophone development before the before the Spanish, and you, where there's a connection to the mosquitoes to blue fields, 
and of course up to Belize, which was I mean, formerly British Honduras, and the Garifuna people who are sort of southern Belize and into Guatemala and along that coast. Uh, and then, of course, there must have been communication. Well, no, Colombia is so far away. I mean, it really is far away when you think of the... the but, of course, Panama belonged to Colombia back then. So the, the, you've got that, I guess, that uh, connection to Colón. Yes. Um, there on that. So you, you're looking at this. Um, I, wanna, I want to, but just out of basic curiosity and, and uh, <laughs> uh, enthusiasm for the buccaneers and the, uh, what do we call them here, privateers uh, or the uh, pirates or the British Navy, as, as, depending on where you sit. Depending on. <laughs> um, so Henry Morgan, I guess, launched his attack on Panama from Providencia. That's the kind of... Yes, I think the famous Portobello yeah. um, attack. And that was 1671, I think, or 1670. So we're looking at... And, and in 1670, I mean, I don't know how, how far your research has gone into, the, into these pirates at all, because a, a personal, personal point of interest that I've been researching, and I found nothing, and I've been in touch with uh, like pirate experts at the University of Portsmouth in southern England and so on, is there's a Dutch pirate who, who, who led one wing, let's say, of one flank of Henry Morgan's um, uh, armada, I want to say, or his fleet that that Mm -hmm. went on uh, against Panama, and he's called Lawrence Prince, or anglicized to Lawrence Prince. And in 1670, so the year before the sacking of Portobello and then Panama City, or Balboa, uh, he came up the Magdalena River from Cartagena to try and sack Mompos, where I am now. But he got as far as the tiny little fortress and was fought back. And that's the closest that a pirate arrival has gotten first. So for me, that's... A, anyway, I digress. So I wanted to know how much you've gone into this, uh, this, is this sort of pirate history. No, I have only in the sense that it was really critical for my most recent project, which really looked at turtle fishing and how turtle was such a, like an important food for actually all these pirates. Um, they tended to seek out safe havens and and locations where they could actually have access to turtle, which I'll talk about later. You can keep it alive for a very long time. The meat is um, quite delicious. Um, I've read, haven't had it yet myself, (laughs) but um, some people still do enjoy turtle today, but I I don't know this particular um, figure or that incident, but I wouldn't be surprised. I think only now are we really um, further kind of expanding into kind of the, the, the mainstream sort of pirate histories. And I don't think that Spanish speaking um, scholars, if they are working on these topics, have been able to like, get their um, their stories out into the English language literature. And so I think there's a kind of a lack of conversation happening mm-hmm. across the two groups. So, uh, so, so interesting. And we'll, we'll get into the turtles because I have no idea about that. But let's, when we, when we talk about, let's say, the British settlers here, or settlers from Britain in Jamaica who then you know, get the rights to land grab in San Andres, what are they hoping to cultivate because that's part of it were they going to do i know that uh, you know sugar cane and i suppose cotton in jamaica i suppose but if they're coming down from there i mean san andres doesn't strike me as the best place i mean i've i've been a couple of times but as only as a tourist so you're so you're right on two fronts so um i'll start with the second question about kind of geography so for those who have not been to san andres or providencia san andres is a very low-lying island sandy 
Um, doesn't have a lot of fresh water, you know, on the island. Not necessarily the place you would imagine massive plantations. Um, uh, Providencia, which does have fresh water, is mountainous terrain, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily, it's fertile, but it's not necessarily, again, what you think of. Um, most of these early settlers, up until the middle of the 1800s, um, actually started out first with Sea Island cotton. They did grow Sea Island cotton. Um, not enough of it, in part because of larger markets were changing. Um, so they kind of, they, they only saw a little bit of the boom and they were part of mostly the decline. And then what we know is that by the middle of the 19th century, actually around the time of emancipation, which we can talk about the, the ways in which the islanders remember or, or tell stories about um, emancipation of slavery, which they akin to the 1830s, um, time period of 1834 when the British abolished it, as opposed to in Colombia when it happened in 1851, um, you find that the islanders turned to coconut production. So San Andres is known for coconut production from the mid-19th until about the mid-20th century. And then Providencia, they kind of grew a little bit of everything. Oranges in particular will be a niche market for them. Um, in terms of agricultural production, and they're um, trans, kind of transporting it pretty much to Central America and to a lesser degree, um, Cartagena, but more so in the 20th century. So they have a little bit of sugarcane, oranges, avocados, a little bit of a lot of stuff. Oh, wow. And then if we look at, I mean, you talk about the emancipation, uh, and before we get to the emancipation, 1834, let's say, in, in uh, Britain, 1851, Colombia, this, the slaves, the, you know, the Africans brought over, largely, I suppose, came through Jamaica first. Were there, were there, or were there direct slave routes from the African mainland all the way to San Andres and Providencia? <laughs> So this is an interesting question that has not been fully explored by many historians. On the one hand, there was one of the original um, kind of land grant um, Anglophone um, settlers, um, Francis Archbold, who was a known slave trader. Um, and there's some reference that he directly brought slaves from Africa. However, um, I've never seen any original documentation that actually supports that. Um, in the United States, um, through a collaboration of a host of international scholars from Latin America and Europe and North America, they have this um, platform called the Slave Voyages Database. It has tens of thousands of slave voyages that you can track. I mean, you know who the owner is, who was the, um, who was the sea captain, the crew, how many slaves came on that ship. Where did they depart from? Where did they land? Remember people, this was a business. People insured slave vessels. If they go down, someone's losing money and you know they want the money back. And so I've only seen one in the Slave Voyages database of a voyage directly. Um, actually, let me go back. I'm not even remembering if it's directly from Africa to Providencia, but there's at least one voyage that documents Providencia is the ending point. That's interesting. So it must, I mean, to have documented Providencia once would suggest as well that, that, that San Andres is in there at some point as well. It, but it suggests. We would hope, yeah. It suggests. So there you go. That's your next job. Uh, because <laughs> as I know, you have spent serious quality time in the archives <laughs> everywhere and in Bogota. I've spent some time in the ones in Bogota. Sometimes they're really, really helpful and other times they're not so helpful at all. <laughs> 
Absolutely. The Archivo General de la Nación, I would say, is probably one of the best archives I've ever been in. Um, and I, I owe a lot to the archival director. I came in as a um, 21-year-old woman who had done very little archival work. And like, I'm here because I'm interested in learning something about San Andres. And he's like, okay, come back. I come back like two days later and he's printed out everything that they have. And I just like, I have a stack that I just go through, right? That's not everyone's experience, but they've been very good to me. So I always um, think very fondly of the staff um, there. But um, the Biblioteca Luis Angel Arango, I mean, there's so many repositories. Bogotá is actually a lovely place um, to do research. And as you said, I've been fortunate to spend half my time. So every time I'm in Colombia, I probably spend two thirds are in Bogota and a third um, on the island. Um, it didn't start out that way, but but over time, that's how it works. Do any records at all exist on San Andres itself, or has it all been centralized? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, and actually, quite a bit of it now has been digitized. Um, for those of you who do speak Spanish um, or can have someone help you, um, a lot of it's been digitized. So we do have a few old wills. We have fortifications um, of the buildings. It's not plentiful, but as a historian, I mean... <laughs> Maybe there's never enough. <laughs> there's always more that you want. Um, but there is a tremendous amount of information on the periods of the 17 and 1800s. However, we've not gotten, I don't think there's been sufficient historians in Colombia who have really taken up a, a deep, passionate interest in the islands, other than to document the juridical kind of history of back and forth between who do the islands belong to, Nicaragua. Or Colombia, which is important, but but there's more that can be done there. Well, I would, I, I think so. I mean, you, you know, obviously the Nicaragua Colombia delay debate was, you know, obviously something that would come up in this conversation, and let's say the the loss of sort of certain fishing rights that Colombians have had, and then the, you know the gain to Nicaragua and so on. But I, I. I tether this entirely to, let's say, in, in the inverted commas, the Raisal people, of course, because they are the ones fishing. You know, it's not you know, us mainlanders. It's not people in Bogota in their suits and the Ministerio de Relaciones Exteriores who are suffering. You know, they may have looked bad internationally for a while, but it's the Raisales. Uh, so perhaps we should discuss this word, Raisal, because... I mean, for me, it appears in sort of 1991 when the new constitution was brought in. Uh, tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so I should back up a little bit. Um, when I first came to Colombia, I came um, in 2001 and I came for 12 months for my most lengthy study. And I came as a, a Fulbright um, recipient. It's an international scholarship in the United States to study um, abroad. And my first six months were in San Andres. And then I realized I was really interested in digging into the history. I wanted to get into the archives. And then I spent the next six months living in Bogota. But that wasn't my original plan. <laughs> and when I arrived to um, San Andres, my original research interests were about um, bilingual um, and cultural identity. And it was very clear that there was a lot of angst and conflicts over their Colombianness and then their Creole language. And I was trying to sort that out. And one of the things I was fortunate to have access to was one of the most prominent islanders um, on San Andres, um, Pastor George May, who at that time had just created um, 
Christian University. Um, so it, it, in fact, the, the reason why you have Universidad Nacional and their sede in San Andres was sort of a competitor to an island created, island funded um, institution. Um, he had been former heritage, um, very central um, community church on the island. We can talk about religion. It's really important to be talking about islanders. And so I got to interview and talk to a lot of people because this was like the guy, like this is the guy you go to when you need stuff, right? Um, he was a, you know, um, pastor emeritus. He was retired, had came home after 30 some years living in the States. And so I got to kind of meet a lot of different people and, and sit in on lots of different kinds of conversations that mainland Colombians never would have had access to. And one thing was clear, no one was using the term Raizal. Mm -hmm. In fact, I remember Islanders asking like older people, what does that mean? Like they were trying to, like, what does that word mean? Where does that word come from? And what I would venture to say is essentially that um, the political kind of elite on the island who were trying to articulate um, a position for themselves as we are a distinct group in Colombia, we have particular ethnic right, rights, wanted to convey that they have um, what essentially is rice, rice, a rootedness on the island. They can't say indigenous, right? Because when they said indigenous, actually people said, what does that mean? We're not Indian. That's what they thought. Like, you know, they look at Spanish and they go into English and they're like, hmm, I'm not indigenous. So that term needed to be socialized. And it wasn't socialized in 2001. And I used to go there every year thereafter. It took 15 years before people really started. And I think it was the youth who started to use that term to carve out a space for them within the ethnic spectrum of Colombia, which um, does include Afro-Colombians whom they can be grouped into, but they see themselves very different from mainland Afro-Colombian um, communities because of this very distinct history that they have, particularly as you pointed out, Anglophone nature and Caribbean connections and Central American connections that they have. So that word was used to, to give them a distinct identity. It was um, promoted by the political and social elite of the island population. And then it took more than a decade or two to actually get you know, local people to start using it. Mm. Uh, if we're talking about the sort of politics of these things, and I love that you mentioned the guy Archbold because I met Archbolds in Providencia. You know, when I did. A, oh yeah, that's where that's where they settled. Yeah, yes, a lot of a lot of Archbolds. But uh, in fact, I bored a, a, an Archbold who was the receptionist in the hotel I stayed at, and I was asking her questions, and she said come over to my house. My dad's Archbold and he knows things. <laughs> so I had to go. But uh, that story, if we, if we bring forward to the politics, because you're mentioning the sort of local elites and so on, but I want to, the politics, uh, what is the Raisal, I mean, uh, how are they represented in Congress? I mean, is there, is there really a voice uh, in, in mainland Colombia uh, on behalf of the Raisal people? Well, yeah, they're a department now. So they, they since 1990 or a little after 1991, they do have a voice. But what I would say is um, the person who occupies that position may not um, be the only <laughs> um, political voice um, on the scene, depending on who that individual is. Um, sometimes the the political figures of even more importance are the church leaders. 
um, in the church leaders, the Baptist church has traditionally been the venue to organize um, that particular segment of the island population. And for, for, for you know, our listeners, just to kind of specify, we're, we're talking about this group known as Raizales, who sometimes I refer to or they refer to them themselves as Native Islanders. They must do so because there's another population of Islanders, um, particularly on San Andres, um, those who came probably mostly in the post-1950s time period. They largely have roots in the coast of Colombia, some from Antioquia, um, you know, few from Bogota, and they've been now maybe second generation. There's those that were born on the island, and by right, they're islanders, but they're not the islanders that I'm talking about. And 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 so I, I'm not really talking about that population. We're really talking about the Raizales and that the church is extremely important, and they have community um, organizing that sometimes um, works in a tune with the politically appointed figure, and sometimes. There's conflict there. Yeah, you, you, you you tiptoed round that quite carefully there, <laughs> but I like it. What um, now? The Baptist Church is the one up the hill. Uh, yes, the white well, there's platform. several. There's oh, several. The original. The original. The original. The, had, 1844. It has a sign outside. It says "Repent." Um, <laughs> I think I've got a. I think I've got a photo beneath that sign. Um, I must have dragged my family up there just because of the history. Uh, but so, yeah, yeah, it's history. It's 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 an amazing building yeah. to see, actually. So the the issue then, I mean, I'm seeing the Baptist side of things. The the conflict with the Catholic side of things. Uh, is there? I mean, what? I mean, well, what it, it's not explicitly religious conflict. Is why the Baptist Church is so important. The Baptist Church, First Baptist Church in particular, is important because prior to the, the presence of a real mainland Colombian state, the pastor of that church was the political authority um, of the island, and 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 so all the Baptist churches that you find, whether on San Andres or on Providencia came out of First Baptist Church, right? Um, and therefore, it's seen as the mother church, and it's a integral part of Raizal identity. Whether they've converted now to Catholicism or they're an Adventist, that the, the ways in which they speak, some of their values and mores were rooted out of the First Baptist Church. So it's not so much that there's um, an explicit conflict religiously, there was actually in the early 20th century for reasons that I can get into, but, but it's not generated. That's not the origin of the, of the conflict. Of course, I, I find it, I mean, it's a, it is a fascinating history and it's, I've, I see far more connected to the rest of the Caribbean and of course, Central America. I feel, you know, and, Again, once I the first time I was in Providencia bothering the Archibald family, you know, the first, one of the first things he says, you know, we don't have a maritime guerrilla here. We don't have the problems of mainland Colombia. We're nothing to do with these people. And, you know, it was a strong feeling, which you understand the distance and... And also, you sort of feel that the, the people, the Raizales, you know, people with their roots on the island, have suffered 
immensely, not just from the distance and a certain degree of racism, uh, which of course you can you get into, and of course the illicit industries in Colombia, which use the islands as a major um, sort of, let's say, transshipment uh, uh, point. How do you feel from all of the years of, uh, of experience out there about what's going on? You've hit it on the nail and and for for a time I had a difficulty I think because I I lived in a community of 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 Raizales. I'm I'm close friends and so for a while that was all I can see because you're only you know you're mm-hmm. hearing certain um, narratives what I would say is that um when the Colombian government decided they wanted to pay attention to these distant faraway islands um they did so in a top down we are going to integrate you into our society with the help of some key local elites, not all of them, but some key ones. And the larger island population was sort of befuddled and not prepared. They were, that was to say the least, they were unprepared for what was going to happen. And what happened? They went from a coconut economy um, where you know there's shipments here and there coming from the outside. They're, the families are really close knit. Um, there's very limited crime. Crime happens, but it's kind of scandalous and spectacular and not very important to, um, you know, the state bringing a new government system, appointing people from outside, not from within the community, um, forcing a new language upon the population, um, feeling the need to also Colombianize. That is what the government called it, the Colombianizar, the population with Catholic missionaries, closing of private funded um, schools. Um, And then you have the, I think the real rupture, which I'm still trying to work out on my own. That's my new project looking at this time period of the the mid 20th century is tourism and the free zone. Um, They were never a tourist island. They didn't have those kinds of commercial interactions and experiences. And now we have um, a very highly commercialized space where land, was taken from people in all kinds of illegal um, ways. Um, And then there's a historical um, exclusion. Um, They've never really been able to fully integrate into what is the primary mode of economic activity on that island, which is is tourism. And Providencia, where you were talking about your, your experience with the Archibald family, they've sort of looked at what happened to San Andres and they've kind of been trying to main that up until um, obviously the hurricane Iota, which really, you know, just kind of uprooted everything. And so Providence has the retention of what San Andres looked like in the 40s and 30s. Um, and what they're afraid of is what happened to San Andres. They don't want that to happen there. So, I mean, you are absolutely correct um, that this is kind of the, the issue at stake that has not been resolved um, yet. Uh, I- I have to say that I am not, and I'm going to say this, the biggest fan of San Andres. Uh, I don't want to go on holiday there. I am fascinated by the history. And if I could immerse myself in the history there and spend a week just learning, I would be happy. But to go to one of these resorts that, I mean, half of these hotels end up looking like part of the Hoover Dam. They're just huge, these these behemoths of, of, of concrete which seem to celebrate a certain degree of money laundering <laughs> and and everything else and and I go there and I'm and I'm sad but if I go to Providencia 
That is paradisical. I mean, yes, it is. You do interact and you do get there. And, you know, there's limited numbers of tourists. Of course, that flight is just, I mean, prohibitively expensive. (laughs) Yes. Um, but you go there and, and the, the, the ambience, of course, it's not just the geography it's, that's so different, but the ambience is different. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would, you know, if I didn't have to go to San Andres again, I wouldn't. <laughs> that's the truth of it. <laughs> I've, I've been hearing more and more people like on the Internet, you know, um, talk about this. For example, we just learned in the U.S. that American Airlines has um, um, is seeking approval to have a direct flight from Miami to San Andres that. And and I have so many mixed feelings. Um, personally, as a person who spent basically about 20 years of my life studying San Andres, I'm super thrilled to have not to go through Panama or Bogota to finally get there. But I just know it's going to be a complete disaster on so many different levels. Um, having Americans have direct access to San Andres and what can come out of that. Um, and, and and I am concerned. And, and I've seen in the last... 15 years, it's, it is a different island than the one I saw first in 2001. It's much more commercialized. They have created these, like, um, I don't know what you call it, like tourist junket kind of activities with the, the water skiing and there's these new locations. And th- that didn't really exist when I first came. There was just some beautiful, you know, beaches. You get on the boat to see the key, Johnny Key or, you know, Haynes Key or whatever. But what I would say is that there is an effort. Um, I'm not quite sure if it's working exactly of having islanders maybe through the posada the the native posada kind of system where you can come and stay in one of their homes and maybe have rondon or you know kind of engage with them and, and hear their voices because they don't have a problem telling you especially if you're an english speaker they love you can get off the airplane as soon as you take the taxi ride <laughs> they will tell you um how they feel and i think that is what i i hope that um people are willing to engage with is meeting the the island people go to church on a Wednesday afternoon or or Sunday morning and, and listen to gospel and listen to them you know worship right um they're very welcoming that's where you'll get kind of get to see the, the realness of their culture yeah that see that would appeal to me far more and I think there is that thing the posadas nativas right but I, I isn't it sort of nationwide as well to try and oh it is I didn't know that okay. well, I don't know I don't know because I remember it popping up somewhere uh, but yeah it's neither here nor there but but yes to be able to include you know proper let's say the local population into these industries would be so much more beneficial whereas it all seems to have come from you know outside as you say it's been forced upon uh, local people let's get let's get back i mean this is all contemporary but let, let's let's wind back as well because you you um you've written a book uh, another book, I think. <laughs> oh no, just this one. one. I've written it's, articles before. <laughs> it's the, the Turtle Men. Yes. And now this oh. is dealing with the turtles themselves, and this deals. With Look it. at that! <laughs> the last Turtle Men of the Caribbean, Sharika D. Crawford. Um, and so this deals with. I guess it starts with the turtles being the meat for the buccaneers and and others, and then goes on and and you discuss shipping boundaries and and so on tell us give us an overview of this book so it surprisingly enough this project generated actually from my research in San Andres and Provencia um it was something I didn't study in in graduate school and essentially I was trying to figure out how do I explain to scholars in particular who study the Caribbean and only can think of Jamaica or Barbados as kind of the quintessential island what what a place like San Andres and Providencia. 
And I remembered that I collected all this like archival material about turtles. I would live with islanders who would talk about preparing turtles. And I just kind of kept pulling that thread. And what I end up with is a, is a story, a really interesting history of turtle fishing communities, particularly on small islands from Grand Cayman and um, Little Cayman, Cayman Brack Islands, who are the, the, the kind of the primary actors in my book, to um, coastal communities in Nicaragua and, of course, the islanders of San Andres and Providencia. And what I'm trying to show is that um, turtle fishing conflicts over turtle fishing actually shaped the political boundaries of the Caribbean. Oh yes, the British um, were very much eager to support their subjects' um, access to essentially what have been a commons, right? So you have Caymanians in particular um, who are hunting two types of turtles, um, green turtle, which you eat. Um, they love this turtle soup, I guess, um, um, into the 20th century, but also hawksbill turtles who are known for their scales and tortoise shell in particular is what we love. And they had depleted those resources um, by the 1800s. And um, in order to kind of continue to pursue the trade, they had to follow the prey. And it took them further out. So they, they leave um, the Cayman Islands and they're going south of Cuba by the Keys. Then they're going off the coast of Nicaragua and Honduras. And then they're going to the archipelago of San Andres and Providencia, where they're um, both having conflicts with local coastal communities and island communities also fishing in these areas who are bringing in their new government authorities who want to kind of assert power that, you know, this is our waters. And we wouldn't think that turtle fishing would cause so much drama, but there is violence. There is the tension of arrest. People get killed, um, legislation. Um, and this is even true for Colombia. So I came to this topic because I was seeing this in San Andres and Providencia, and then I found out, well, they're not the only ones. This was actually happening um, throughout the southwestern Caribbean. Wow. The, 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 a turtle market should be something, and, it, and it's not something we associate. You know, we think of, let's say, I, I don't know, a hake or so on in the North Atlantic or something of that nature, maybe Spanish fishermen in, in British waters or something. But I guess you can transplant the same issues from elsewhere, but in this turtle, <laughs> to, let's say, uh, context. Really Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned earlier about um, one of the fallouts of the loss of Colombia's um, juridical, you know, kind of issue with Nicaragua was fishing rights. Well, traditionally, up until at least the beginning of the 20th century, um, turtle fishing was something very in, um, much engaged on Providencia. Um, they were going out to the far keys to do this. And who are they butting up with? These Caymanians who have tremendous support from the British government and the Colombian supporting, you know, government can have a lot of support for them. And then they are kind of forcing them to take diplomatic action. You know, you need to get out there. You need to kind of stake your claim. Keeping in mind, this is the time period when the U.S. has already intervened and Panama has already been separated. Nicaragua has already made overtures and continues to make overtures over the archipelago. They're really aggressive, trying to have a maritime territorial boundary. So it's a story that seems kind of, um, you know, unusual, um, kind of fantastical, but was very much real for the people who lived those communities. Now, we've mentioned, let's say, the rice salads, and we've mentioned others, um, and mosquito, but uh, I've, I've heard no made, mention made of the kuna. 
Uh, Acuna, I, yes. Yeah. I mean, the, on Panama and northern northern yeah. Colombia, where, where do they fit into this? Well, they they don't fit in as closely to the archipelago of San Andres and Providencia. But if you look on a map, they're really far, right? They're they're very far from from those mm. islands. But the Cuna and the Mosquito, in many ways, are super similar. These are indigenous communities that were largely autonomous during a period of Spanish or European colonialism, right? We don't we we often think of when the Europeans arrived, they either killed off the indigenous people or they um, dominated them, you know, overcame them, made them subjects. For the Mosquito or the Kuna, <laughs> they were very savvy. They were very able to be um, flexible, use multi-linguistics. They would learn Dutch and English, and they would be able to identify strategically partners. And if necessary, they would use warfare if they had to, <laughs> um, to push back the Spanish. So the Kuna are not really central to San Andres and Providencia, but they probably would be central, maybe islands closer. So I'd be curious if the Curacao or Bonaire or, or you know Isla Margarita or some of those places would have had contact. And, and then if I'm if I'm thinking about San Andres and then the sort of let's say that space in between San Andres and getting to Bluefields, Nicaragua, I read a book many many years ago, and I'm going to say 19. 19- by uh, a journalist, British journalist called Edward Marriott and it was called Wild Coast and it was about shark fishing uh, along there and sharks going up the rivers and stuff. So I imagine it's still a serious issue. This must have touched on your your turtle research as well. Yeah, so as turtle stocks deplete, they turn to other things like sharks. Shark fin fishing, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So so you do see that. Um, you also see engagement actually with, um, in terms of maritime um, equipment and technology and trade. So for example, in Providencia um, and in Cayman Islands, um, they use nets to kind of um, take the, the turtles. The mosquito use harpoons. So in certain places, you would see harpoons in Costa Rica on the coast, like in places, yeah, like um, um, I'm thinking Cahuita, for example, um, which is south of Puerto Limon on the southern part of the Caribbean. Um, they have also Anglophone Afro-Caribbean populations, and you'll see them harpooning um, from for, for these turtles. But then by the 1930s and 40s, we start to see the mosquito using nets. How did they come to get these nets? They literally were meeting Caymanians in the middle of the ocean, right? And they're bartering. And then they started to realize, well, maybe they're getting more, you know, turtles. With this. <laughs> so um, it, there's, it's, there's also an interesting story of kind of exchange, cultural diffusion and exchange. That's not always conflict-based. People are marrying one another. People have all these great stories of Caymanians who talk about moving to San Andres, Corn Islands, Providencia, because they had an uncle or an aunt who went there. They were on a sailing ship. And I was sitting in, you know, Georgetown, you know, Grand Cayman. I was so excited. I was like, jumping for joy. But is, is, this, is this movement between, let's say, the Cayman Islands, because I did hear of people leaving San Andres to go and work in construction in the Caymans and think, it's it's pretty fluid, right, this, this movement? Well, it had been up until, you know, the 20th century and states started requiring like passports and and, and, and then there was immigration um, bans that occurred and sometimes islanders trapped because they didn't, they thought they were West Indians and they didn't want West Indians and Colombians. So what you're talking about has been um, people who are kind of recovering the familial and cultural links going to Grand Cayman, um, oftentimes having a difficult time. 
<laughs> Grand Cayman's also kind of a, you know, has its own special, you know, um, social kind of cultural space. And while they traditionally had things in common, Grand Cayman's now this kind of wealthy place, financial tourism sector, who sorts, sort of wants to keep people out. You do see a lot of international people, but there's a lot of legal immigration restrictions about how long they can be there. Um, they can't like marry or have children there and then access things um, on the island. So people end up feeling, I think from San Andres Provincia, um, feeling very depleted by the experience. It's not as um, enjoyable as they had imagined. So how has the reception been, been to the last Hurtleman? It's been wonderful, actually. Yeah, <laughs> it's so actually been, um, I'm surprised because uh, it's a quirky story. But <laughs> I'm just happy good. people are reading it. <laughs> Quirky is good because it has an appeal, definitely. Uh, and I think, well, I'm glad that people are liking it. And I will keep an eye out always for uh, essays that re make reference to it and so on. Um, but I, I'm fascinated by this as well. And I just think a lot of the, the history of the, obviously the history is told by the victor. So it's a, you know, it, it, we don't hear these histories as uh, you know, uh, statues such as Edward Colston's are pulled down and others, we do start to reveal other histories. And then, and so this is, a, this, you know, I see this as a positive move. Um, do you feel then, I mean, as we close up, how do you feel towards, let's think of San Andres Providencia for the future? Are you concerned? Because Providencia obviously was hammered by the the hurricane, and we don't really expect the Colombian state to do too much. And I think, they, I mean, last thing I checked, it's not even in the news here. They've done nothing. I think it's like five houses or something. But uh, what, what and they you, promised a hundred. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's lots of promises. They're very good on numbers. Um, but, yeah, I, I am concerned. I'm concerned. Well, I mean, there's the immediate problem of um, climate change, and obviously now the the islands traditionally have been safe from a massive kind of tropical cycles because of where they're located. But clearly, um, I think we're gonna have to anticipate seeing more of that and how do you make them disaster ready? How do you, um, you know, the sustainability of life living in, in, in these kinds of places needs to be, I think, engaged very thoughtfully at multiple levels. Um, I do worry about the strategies that have been traditionally used to um, either protest or resist, I guess might be a better way to kind of resist um, state intervention, um, outside influence may need to be rethought uh, at, a, at a grassroots level. Um, I, I don't know if, if they, they're going to meet the 21st century challenges, right? Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm wondering and I'm hoping that the, the, the young people who really live on those, you know, on those islands um, have some really imaginative, innovative ways of thinking through um, were really serious issues. But what I would say is um, San Andres and Providencia is perhaps one of the, the most special places that I've had the opportunity to, to travel to, let alone, you know, be able to live and make friends in a community wish, with. And I, I only wish um, the best for, for those people because they have so many things to contribute. And I think um, the problems are great, but I think people can overcome them.
Oh, wonderful. Thank you for, for bringing it to a close with, uh, on this positive note. And for anyone interested in reading uh, a little bit about the, you know, uh, the research that Sharika has done over all these years, The Last Turtleman of the Caribbean, I suppose we can find it in all the usual places, Amazon, etc., and on your website, which, of course, I'll put up on, on our Facebook page and on Twitter and so on. Uh, Sharika Crawford, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing this un you know such profound knowledge so unselfishly thank you so much for having me it's been great no it's been a real pleasure to be able to hear this and and, and talk just about a different aspect of life that envelops obviously completely the caribbean but is so directly you know connected to colombia for obvious obvious reasons so we'll close off now and of course you'll find all the relevant links on the facebook page and on uh on Twitter and all the other social evil, social media evils out there. I've been Richard McCall talking to the Associate Professor of History at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. It's Sharika Crawford. Her latest book is, and I say latest because there will be more, uh, The Last Turtleman of the Caribbean. Do check it out if you're interested. This has been episode 385. It's been a great episode. Thank you again for everyone for tuning in. And of course, we'll be back next week discussing something else Columbia related. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.